Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, I'm Rachel Woody. I am here with Andrew Beckham, and we're at Union Wine Co., and we are here, is it M4A if it's plural? M4A if they're plural. Yeah, M4A for a single. Excellent. And so, Andrew, we definitely want to cover everything about the M4A, but my first question is, is why using the M4A? Okay, so the inspiration for the project came from Elisabetta Foradori, and she's a producer in Italy who uses Amphora in her cellar. Mm -hmm. And after my wife showed me um, some imagery with her vessels and, and her usage in, in her winemaking practice, I became really interested and intrigued. And so I began the, the project by building 31 liter vessels uh, that were fired at a multitude of different cone values. And the idea there was that I would fill the vessels with a finished Riesling and weigh them weekly to see what the evaporation loss translated to in terms of volume um, at each cone value. Mm -hmm. And it was through that process I was able to hone in on the most appropriate firing temperature uh, for these vessels to be viable to make, to make wine in. Um, fired at too low of a temperature, the containers weep, uh, they lose volume and you wind up with sanitation problems. Mm -hmm. Fired at a, at a temperature beyond the point of vitrification uh, and the vessels are sealed and non-porous and they don't have any of the beautiful characteristics that we're looking for um, in a breathable terracotta body. Uh, so it was at the conclusion of that couple month trial period that I made a really important discovery. I learned that without seasoning or treating the vessels with a very hefty tartaric acid solution, that the basic nature of the clay would remove all the acid from the wine. So we took a really beautiful Riesling that had a, a pH of 2.8 and we ruined it in the test vessels. We shifted the pH to almost four in just a couple months. Wow. So not only did that um, experiment lead me to the right firing temperature um, for viability, but it also helped me discover that the vessels needed to be treated and seasoned. Mm -hmm. So moving forward from that point, uh, I started to, to build some containers that would work to make commercial wine in. And the first step was to try and get to about 60 gallons. Um, so several of these are at the 60 gallon range. Um, like this one here and this guy here. Mm -hmm. and the problem with that volume is that it doesn't translate to anything after you press the wine off. So at a 60 gallon vessel after it's pressed is going to um, result in about uh, 40 gallons of, of finished wine and that is not a volume that's familiar or um, practical to work with in a commercial setting. Right. So then the next step in the project was to scale the vessels to about 90 gallons so that we would have um, a pressed 60 gallon lot that would be familiar and translatable um, into other containers in the winery. Um, a, a 90 gallon right there, that taller one? This is about 200 gallons. 200 gallons, yeah. okay. So this large vessel took um, a ton and a quarter of fruit to fill. Um, the, the vessels that are at this height range here are about 90 gallons. Okay. Um, in addition to exploring firing temperature, I've also been looking at shape mm -hmm. and how shape relates to our intention with our winemaking. So the conical bottom forms, um, like this vessel here, 
we're referring to as amphora, but technically would not be an amphora because they're larger than 40 gallons and they don't have handles. But amphora is a term that people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. So these vessels with the conical bottom I'm using for skin contact white ferments. As the skins and seeds stratify to the bottom of the vessel, the seeds sit on the bottom, the skins on top. Our extractable surface area is much more limited than in a broad bottom tank. So for a skin contact white, we can stay on uh, the skins and seeds for a much longer duration than we could in a broad bottom vessel. I've been exploring the Clevery form from the Republic of Georgia, which is the, the bulbous form here. And in Georgia, these vessels are subterranean. They're often lined in wax. Um, but they're kept underground and we've been using these vessels for for red fermentations And then I'm also expo exploring and experimenting with the egg form and the egg has some really interesting kinetic qualities uh, We're using the egg form for pressed whites as it tends to stir the wine and keep the wine turbid uh, Without any intervention. We don't have to go in and, and stir the wheeze Right and the vessels have some really amazing qualities. They're incredibly porous, so the potential for gas exchange is, is quite large. Mm -hmm. um, when the vessels are in fermentation, we really don't see a lot of percolation through the, through the bungs until we're at about 10 or 12 bricks when the ferments are really ripping along. Um, the gas is pushed through the wall uh, until we're at that point where they're really chugging. Um, so the potential then for, for oxygenation and gas exchange is much more so than in a, in a barrel. Um, looking at dissolved oxygen rates, I found that the DO and the M4 is about twice what it is in wood. And the wines coming from these vessels tend to mature and age at a much faster rate um, than they're aging and maturing in wood. Um, the containers, because of their negative charge, uh, this clay is a negatively charged um, item. It, the, the negative charge in the, in the clay body tends to act as a catalyst for protein stabilization. So we're, we're bottling these wines without filtration and fining. Uh, the proteins are, are bound um, to the negative charge in the clay body and we're, we're then able to produce wines with incredible clarity um, without any intervention. Um, let's see, what else would be of note? I'm curious about the logistics, going from, first of all, creating these things to what it takes to move them, fire them, get them here, fill them with grapes or wine. What are all the logistics you had to conceive of because it's so much different from putting it in a steel tank or an open right. barrel? Okay, well, from a production standpoint, the logistics were quite complicated. With the equipment that is commercially available, I was only able to build these vessels at a maximum width of 28 inches and a maximum height of about 48. So I was at a stopping point um, with the scale of the vessels um, based on the equipment that I had. So with the help of a local kiln and wheel manufacturer, I was able to get some equipment that allowed me to scale much beyond the 90 gallon range um, into the 200 gallon range and beyond. Working with vessels that weigh a thousand pounds in the studio has required um, some creative ingenuity. Um, they're too cumbersome and, and heavy and hard to handle with human hands. So we've had to resort to using a forklift and we've had to come up with means to, to move the vessels around and get them in and out of the kilns um, without lifting by hand. 
So transportation of the containers is, is kind of funny. These at 90 gallons sit in the front seat of my Volkswagen Jetta just perfectly and I can, I can transport them um, in my car. Uh, the larger vessels like, like the 200 gallon vessel here uh, had to build a cradle and put that in the back of our, our farm truck to get it down here. My hope over the course of the next year is to scale to the 300 or 350 gallon range, getting closer to 2,000 pounds of clay. And they're probably going to be um, moved on some kind of a flatbed truck once we get to that scale. Uh, in the winery, um, the practicality of these vessels in terms of managing their, their fragility um, and also handling their mobility has been a challenge. So at the end of last year, I broke one of the vessels and I was determined not to have that happen again. We're in a facility where we need to have mobility. The vessels need to be pushed around and moved during crush and during the aging process. So they're now all anchored on wooden pallets. I've had a fabricator build me stainless steel hoops or rings that capture the neck of the vessel. Um, the hoop is then anchored to the, to the pallet using a set of webbing straps. I've had a fabricator build me stainless steel lids uh, that we seal to the top of the amphora with an aneological mastiche. Um, and with this setup, the vessels are mobile. So I can move them under the distimmer for, for crushing. Um, when we get ready to empty them, I can tip them with the forklift to empty their contents. Uh, and then when they're full of finished wine uh, for the aging process, they're also mobile. So the logistics behind creating a vessel that would work in a commercial setting has been a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, they also take up a great deal of room in the winery. They have a big footprint. Mm -hmm. So I have 33 of them that I made wine in for the 2015 vintage and we're hoping to, to double that to about 60 vessels for this coming vintage. And um, I got the year wrong. I've got about right. 30 of them that I've made for the 2014 vintage, hoping to have 60 for the 15 vintage. And we're gonna put pallet racking in here and they're gonna go a couple vessels high. Um, on the, the bases, they are stable. Um, so they, they can be maneuvered and um, theoretically, they should be able to go up into the air to consume less floor space. Wow. When you got started and you decided and committed to using the amphora as your vessel, were there some real skeptics out there or did you find that the wine community was like, yeah, all right, <laughs> experimenting? Well, certainly there, there was some enthusiasm regarding trying something new and pioneering a, a new way to make wine in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people that I shared the project with initially, when I told them that I was going to make Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir and Amphora, they said, why? Um, so that, there was an interesting response there. Um, but really, ultimately, the wine is going to speak for itself. And we are incredibly excited with the wines that have come from these vessels. Um, there are some tendencies that the amphora seem to impart. Um, there's a, a common textural component to the wines coming from amphora that we see regardless of varietal. Um, the wines coming from clay tend to have a very um, dusty brick-like tannin structure. Uh, and we see that in Pinot Noir, we see it in, in Riesling, we see it in Malbec, um, we've seen it in Gruner. So in, in all the varietals that we've made um, in these vessels, there's a common textural component. Um, the wines coming from clay tend to be very bright and high-toned. Um, the fermentation curve with these vessels is quite interesting. 
they are very cool and mild. Um, mm -hmm. So with all of our lots that we've done in Amphora, we did sister or twin ferments and macro bins. And we noticed initially a huge difference in the, the extraction and the, the fermentation curve between the two vessels. Um, the Amphora peak at between 22 and 23 degrees Celsius. The um, uh, macro bins tend to peak closer to 30 degrees. The fermentation duration in the Amphora is between 21 and 25 days versus 10 or 11 days in a macro bin. So the resulting wines at the conclusion of primary are very different. The wines coming from clay are very bright. They're high toned. They sing a fruit. Um, and then as we have returned these wines and have aged in the vessels, we're seeing some really interesting um, characteristics to the wines being aged in these vessels as well. Um, they're maturing at a faster rate. Uh, they also have the micro-oxygenation occurring. Um, but more than anything, it's a true expression of the fruit. Mm -hmm. um, there's no oak that's getting in the way. Mm -hmm. We've pulled oak from the equation, but we're not lacking something. We've replaced it with, with something else intriguing and of great interest. That's wonderful. So Elisabetta was the inspiration. Uh, she, she's also using these vessels. Have you had a chance to meet her or speak with her? Or has there been an exchange of, of knowledge there? Well, one of the challenges working with these amphora in Oregon is that there's no one to ask yeah. about how they're performing. Um, we were lucky enough to, to meet Elisabetta Foradori's daughter um, about five months ago at a dinner she was hosting um, at a local restaurant. And her daughter, Miarta, um, was really excited to, to meet us because her mother had heard about our project. Mm. And she's here doing an exchange um, at OSU. Uh, she's studying soils at Oregon State. And um, we spent several hours together talking about commonalities with our wines and, and wines that her mother has made in her cellar. Uh, so we were, we were floored that her mother knew about our small project in Oregon, being that she's, she's Italian. Um, but we were incredibly enthusiastic about having a, a chance to share the wines with Miarta mm -hmm. um, and, and talk about what she's seen and then um, come here and taste the wines um, together in, in our cellar. Mm -hmm. And the trip that we're making to, um, to France this summer, we may likely meet up with Elisabetta and Miarta um, for part of our trip. Gosh, how wonderful. Yeah. So we're going to test Tuscany. Tuscany? Yeah. Well, of course. We were, we were actually <laughs> super shocked that she knew that she well, knew about yeah. us. Yeah. And how affirming I'm sure it yeah. must be to know that the news reached her. Yeah. And where, that it, where does she get her vessels? Where her, does Elisabetta get her vessels? Her, her vessels are made in Spain. Um, and she, she's relatively new to the, the concept of making wine in M4. She started in 2009. There are some producers that have been using these vessels for a much longer time than she has. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <clears throat> is it common more so in Europe to use these vessels for fermentation or is, or is it still pretty unique even over there? It's, it's still fairly unique. There's a, an 8,000 8, year unbroken chain of making wine in Amphora in the Republic of Georgia. And a lot of people really feel, and science is beginning to prove, that the, the birthplace of wine was, in fact, Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, there are people who've been using these vessels for 
the last 15 years. Um, there's a, a lot of interest, I think, now in historic practice, and right. things are cyclical, and it's amazing that we're, you know, returning. I think it's a, not amazing, but it's a, it makes sense that we're returning to historic practice mm -hmm. and using these vessels that worked for thousands of years. Um, being that there are not many producers in the United States using these vessels, it's hard to troubleshoot. So for example, when I filled these this year, they all got soaking wet. Um, even after they were soaked up with the tartaric acid solution, when I filled them with fruit, they, they got wet and they stayed wet for about two weeks. So it was a little unnerving, not, not really knowing and understanding what was gonna happen. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually they dried out and found their equilibrium and um, yeah. There are a few people in Oregon who are using amphora that have been imported from Italy. Okay. Uh, we know of, of three other producers who are using the Italian imports. Um, but they're, they're more factory made and they're much more generic in their nature. Did you have a question? Do you reuse the amphora or are they one use only? Oh, that, that's a super great question. So the amphora, the beautiful thing about the amphora is that theoretically these should be good for hundreds if not thousands of years. And that's completely unlike a French oak barrel that's new only once and after three fills is what we consider neutral. And my suspicion is, and what I've, I've gleaned so far, is that these vessels become more interesting over usage. And as they become seasoned and, and have been filled multiple times, um, they've got more to offer. Being that I have access to kilns, I am able to sterilize the amphora if we ever have a microbial problem, pediococcus or brett or something that we can't get rid of in an organic vessel we're able to sterilize and reset these. Um, additionally, some of these vessels that I've made are fired at a lower temperature and they're lined with beeswax or soy wax. Some are fired at the sweet spot and, and they're unlined, they're unwaxed. Um, we can cross between unlined and lined with the, the access to kilns so we could line one of them in beeswax and try it for a year and decide that that's not what we want and we can mm -hmm. heat it and burn the wax out or we could take one fired at a lower temperature and, and line it in wax or soy um, or you know keep them unlined as most of them are. Mm -hmm. Do they tend to absorb the flavor at all? Like if you did a Pinot Noir one year and one would it then affect like if you did a Riesling in the same pot the next year or how does that They're, work? The vessels are very benign um, so we have experimented moving from Petit Verdot to Riesling in these mm -hmm. vessels and we don't see any um, pigment that's extracted. Um, so I think, you know, moving from, from one vessel to another or from one varietal to another is not an issue in the amphora. Mm -hmm. What about the, the process? I'm just curious to know from beginning to end, from beginning of thinking of making an amphora to actually getting grapes into it, how long, how many hours? How much is the labor? For one vessel? Um, well, they take me in the neighborhood of two to three weeks to build. And in terms of working time, we're looking at 20 to 30 hours, depending on volume. They take a couple months to dry, uh, in between two and three months to dry before they're ready to be fired. Uh, the firing is generally in the neighborhood of 60 hours. Um, and they've got a, to be transported to the winery. They get filled with a 30% tartaric acid solution that soaks up for about 48 hours. And then I, I let them dry um, 
mount them on the, the pallets that I build and then push them under the stimmer and fill them up. So from start to finish, uh, we're, if we're speeding through things, we're looking at four months. Um, but most of these vessels I constructed about a year ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm just now starting to build more for this, this coming vintage. Any other questions? Anything that I should have asked you about the Amphora mm. that I didn't? I guess one of the one of the problems with them is that they're hard to well they're fragile, uh, and then the the care and tending takes some some real consideration. Um, we we don't want to use sulfur in these vessels. We don't want them to absorb absorb sulfur. Uh, we can't heat them terribly hot with hot water, um, or they'll crack. We ha when we're going to heat them in the kiln, we ramp up in 15 or 20 degree increments. So to clean them takes um, some care. They are rinsed and, and washed, um, and then I will fill them with a, a hefty acidic solution and drain them and let them dry. And then before they're put away, uh, I make sure they're incredibly dry. I'll put a box fan on the top of them and, and get all the moisture out of the inside of the vessel. Um, or they tend to want to grow mold. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they really take some, it takes some effort to, to keep them sustainable and viable. Mm -hmm. um, and then you add the, the fragility component to them. And, um, you know, they're a little harder to work with than vessels that we commonly use in, in the winery, but the, the resulting outcome is such that I'm, I'm gonna push forward. If you had to do it all over again, would you choose to use the Amphora or do you second think it or would you be like, oh, of course, definitely going to use these vessels? I, I would do it over again in a heartbeat. Um, I'm so enthusiastic and excited about the wines coming from the vessels that I really think this is the direction we want to head. My, my intent is to produce about a thousand cases in Amphora next year. We did. 450 cases for the 14 vintage, but ultimately I I could for I could see ourselves fermenting 100% of our wines in amphora mm -hmm. and aging a percentage of our wines in clay, um, but using these vessels as our primary catalyst to make wine. Wonderful. Any last thoughts? I wanted to I don't know if you can put this in or not, but I wanted to thank my parents yes, for their for their can. support. Yeah. Uh, my father's. Um, brilliant mind and you know willingness to to help his crazy kid doing something that uh, I don't know thank you dad yeah well done well thank you very much Andrew and to Stephen thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.